Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Thank you for joining us on Therapeutic Thursdays. This podcast provides an opportunity to listen in as content matter experts sit down to discuss what's new and ongoing in the world of therapeutics. If you're an ASHP member, you will also have the opportunity to earn continuing education for listening to this episode. Stay tuned at the end for more information. My name is Vicki Vasiliga, and I am the director of the Section of Clinical Specialist Scientists here at ASHP. My guest today is Norm Fenn, Assistant Professor at Manchester University College of Pharmacy, Natural and Health Science. He's also a pediatric clinical pharmacist at Parkview Women's and Children's in Fort Wayne, Indiana. In our episode today, Dr. Fenn will be presenting and discussing the management of tetanus. Welcome, Norm. Vicki, thank you so much for having me. So why don't we go ahead and start with the patient case to set the stage? Absolutely. Let's go ahead and get started with our patient, PG, who is a 10-year-old male who presents to the ED. His chief complaint is an inability to open his mouth with persistent jaw pain and some difficulty swallowing. In obtaining a history of illness with the parents, PG stepped on a rusty nail a little over two weeks ago with his left foot, but the wound ultimately healed. About four days ago, he was walking rather awkwardly and was complaining about back pain and a stiff jaw. He's also been unable to eat anything other than soft foods and drink some fluids, though this is difficult with his jaw pain and limited movement. So a physical exam is conducted and there is noted trismus with the mouth opening to approximately one centimeter. No airway compromise is noted, no drooling, no altered mental status, and fever and chest pain are also negative. His past medical history is largely insignificant. He has no known medical conditions or allergies. He was delivered vaginally at term, no complications were noted. He lives in an Amish community with his parents and four other siblings, all of whom are healthy. However, neither he nor his siblings are vaccinated. PG weighs 27 kilograms and is approximately 130 centimeters tall. His heart rate on admission was 114 beats per minute. Blood pressure was 124 over 72 millimeters of mercury. A respiratory rate of 22 breaths per minute. A temperature of 37.1 degrees Celsius and oxygen saturations of 97%. His Glasgow coma scale was 15, and his reported pain is 2 out of 10 in the jaw area, 0 out of 10 anywhere else. We do have some preliminary laboratory results and measurements to report as well. He had a basic metabolic panel and a complete blood count with a differential drawn. The BMP was largely normal with a serum sodium of 136 milligrams per deciliter, a serum potassium of 3.7 milligrams per deciliter, serum chloride of 99 milligrams per deciliter, uh, sodium bicarbonate concentration of 24, a BUN of 10, and a serum creatinine of 0.42 milligrams per deciliter. His blood glucose of 109 milligrams per deciliter and serum calcium of 9.9 milligrams per deciliter. His hemoglobin was 13.2 with a hematocrit of 37.1 and a platelet count of 295,000. His white blood cell count was 8.6 cells per microliter with a differential of 78.5% neutrophils, 15.7% lymphocytes, 5.3% monocytes, and 0.1% eosinophils with 0.2% basophils. His venous blood gas had a pH of 7.30, a PCO2 of 55, a PO2 of 76, and a base deficit of 1. An electrocardiogram was also performed. It was noted that he had sinus rhythm with a QTC interval of 440 milliseconds. Additionally, blood and respiratory cultures were drawn and are in process. Interesting. So can we step back a little bit and tell us a little bit about the prevalence of tetanus? Absolutely. Tetanus is caused by a resistant, sometimes deadly bacterium called Clostridium tetani, 
which is an anaerobic organism whose spores can be found throughout the local environment, like dirt or soil. The spores are known to be quite resilient, remaining dormant for years, and are even known to resist eradication interventions such as heat and disinfectants. The bacterium spore isn't transmitted from person to person. Rather, it has to enter the body through some type of puncture, such as a rusty nail. It can also be contracted through intravenous drug abuse, burn injury, or some other situation where the integrity of the skin is compromised. And finally, it can be transmitted through birth, resulting in neonatal tetanus. One of the goals of the CDC is to eliminate neonatal tetanus, which is defined as less than one case of tetanus per 1,000 live births. And there are only 12 countries in the world thus far that have yet to achieve this goal. The bacterium has toxin-mediated effects, which are ultimately the cause of this condition. This toxin, which is called tetanospasm, irreversibly binds to gangliosides at the neuromuscular junction, then travels along the neuron to the ventral horns of the spinal cord or motor, motor horns of the cranial nerves, depending on the location of entry. Then, over the next 2 to 14 days, the toxin destroys the vesicular synapse, synaptic membrane protein, which leads to inactivation of glycine and GABA neurotransmission, ultimately paralyzing muscle fibers. The main effect of this condition is then observed, which is progressively intense and painful muscle contractions, usually starting with the jaw before becoming more generalized. The good news is tetanus is a disease for which vaccines exist and are effective. It's part of the child vaccine regimen, childhood vaccine regimen, starting at two months of age, and it's recommended to be repeated every 10 years or sooner if a possible exposure occurs. From 2009 to 2017, there were 264 tetanus cases reported in, North, in the United States, with 19 reported deaths. Most cases occurred in patients between 20 to 64 years of age, about 64% of these cases, followed by senior citizens, which was 23% of the reported cases, and 13% in pediatric patients, which included three neonatal tetanus cases. Vaccination status was known in 72 of these cases, and of those 72, only 18 of the patients had received at least three doses of the Texas tetanus toxoid vaccine. Globally, immunization rates can vary, especially in developing countries, so tetanus infections can be more prevalent there. The obvious downside is if allowed to progress without intervention, tetanus can approach a 100% case fatality rate, so it's important to quickly identify and initiate treatment for potential causes of tetanus. The risk of contracting tetanus coincides directly with vaccination status, either as not getting vaccinated previously or having an extended time, such as longer than 10 years, between vaccinations with tetanus. Referring to the 264 cases previously discussed, the data re reflect reported vaccination rates of greater than 93% in infants and children, but a notable gap in adult populations. Adults in the 2014 study had roughly a 60% tetanus booster vaccination rate within the past 10 years. So thankfully, with most individuals getting the vaccine, the incidence of actual tetanus occurring is rare in the U.S. As stated, the CDC reports an incidence of about 30 to 50 cases of tetanus annually. It's really quite rare. Thank you so much, Nora. So I feel like everyone knows this, but I need to ask, what does tetanus look like? Can you go into detail about the clinical presentation of tetanus and its associated complications? Absolutely. So tetanus doesn't really have a definitive test that confirms diagnosis, but rather it's an assessment of patient history and clinical presentation. A patient with tetanus will present with a collection of symptoms that includes lockjaw, trismus, which is that spasm of the jaw, a grimace or smile-like facial expression, also known as rhesus sardonicus, generalized muscle spasms, drooling, 
loss of bladder and bowel control, and if further progressed, opisthotonus, which is the back arching spasm you can see in those medieval drawings of old, which do not look comfortable at all. This particular symptom is especially worrisome as the torque on the back with combined intense spasms can cause significant issues such as respiratory failure, fractures, and of course, extraordinary pain. The severity of tetanus is most commonly measured by the ABUT score, which ranges from mild, which is classified as a grade one, to very severe, which is classified as grade four. It is reasonable to consider getting wound cultures in addition to blood cultures with a concern about tetanus. However, the chances of growing that Clostridium tetani are relatively low. Wound cultures tend to grow this bacterium only about 30% of the time. Even if a wound is cultured, the likelihood of actually identifying it is quite low. The list of differential diagnoses is actually rather short and includes encephalitis, meningitis, dystonias, intracranial hemorrhages, hepatic encephalopathy, seizures, strychnine poisoning, and neuroleptic malignant disorder. Some of the complications that we may observe include a need for upper or include need for upper airway obstruction that ultimately can potentially lead to tracheotomy, fractures, nerve damage, stress ulcers, cardiac arrhythmias, hypertension, cranial nerve palsies, respiratory arrest, coma, and death. In a study from Munkar and colleagues, pneumonia was observed in 13 of 25 pediatric patients at a tertiary care center in Mumbai, India. So prognosis of a patient really relies on the time to presentation from the incident or symptom initiation. Factors that can negatively affect prognosis include generalized tetanus as compared to local tetanus, high fever, and secondary causes such as burn, neonatal transmission, and surgery. So now that you've told us a little bit about how to present, can you, let's revisit PG and see what's happening since he's presented in the ED. Sure. Finally, PG is formally diagnosed with tetanus. He gets admitted to the PICU via an ED transfer, and we initially, we initiate immediate therapy for him. He receives the following medications in the ED before he's transferred up to the uh, ICU unit. He gets tetanus toxoid IV immunoglobulin, 500 milligrams. He gets the DTaP vaccine uh, as a single dose. He also gets a single dose of lorazepam, two milligrams, which works out to approximately 0.08 milligrams per kilogram. He receives that intravenously. He also gets one milligram of morphine, which works out to approximately 0.03 milligrams per kilogram intravenously once. The physician also orders acetaminophen 400 milligrams, which is approximately 15 milligrams per kilogram orally every four hours as needed, along with ibuprofen 270 milligrams, which is approximately 10 milligrams per kilogram orally every six hours as needed. Metronidazole is started in this patient at a dose of 275 milligrams, which again is approximately 10 milligrams per kilogram, and it's ordered intravenously every eight hours. He's also ordered IV fluids because he's going to be made NPO status while he progresses with dextrose 5% in water and normal saline, as well as 20 MEQs per liter of potassium chloride, running at his maintenance rate of approximately 70 mils per hour. Additionally, since he's being transferred to the PICU, we start GI stress ulcer prophylaxis of famotidine 20 milligrams intravenously daily. PG is then reassessed after the initial medication administration and is noted to react unfavorably after lorazepam administration. On physical exam, it's noted he's unable to open his airway or unable to open his mouth beyond 0.5 centimeters, and the decision is made to intubate the patient to protect his airway. He's sedated on midazolam 0.1 milligrams per kilogram per hour, 
and paralyzed with vecuronium 0.1 milligrams per kilogram per hour to attempt to control his spasms. However, he continues to spasm over the paralytic agent, notably with neck, jaw, and torso areas. Magnesium is then considered for the patient given his failure with previously recommended options. So very interesting. Um, what are the best treatment practices for tetanus? What should be immediately ordered and what should be considered based on patient-specific concerns? The most important components that need to be addressed are the active infection and the associated toxin-induced muscle spasms. So as we mentioned previously, that tetanus immunoglobulin should definitely be ordered. Since the tetanus toxin binds irreversibly to tissues, the immunoglobulin globulin is used to treat the new and target the neutralizing unbound toxin. There is some discussion about what dosing should be used. Some dosing recommendations are between 3,000 to 6,000 units of tetanus immunoglobulin given intramuscularly for all patient demographics and should be injected around the wound if possible. However, there are some data that suggests 500 units of tetanus immunoglobulin is as effective as the higher dose regimen and may also be better tolerated. In addition to the tetanus immunoglobulin, the tetanus toxoid vaccine is indicated either as the TD vaccine singularly or the Tdap or DTAP vaccine based on the age of the patient. Clostridium tetani is susceptible to anaerobic covering antimicrobials, which makes metronidazole an ideal regimen. Dosing in children is 30 milligrams per kilogram per day, orally or intravenously, divided every six hours. Adult dosing is 500 milligrams per dose, orally or intravenously, every six to eight hours. Alternatively, penicillin G can be considered. Pediatric dosing is 100,000 units per kilogram per day, intravenously, divided every six hours, with a maximum of 20 million units per day. Adult dosing is two to four million units, intravenously, every four to six hours. Both regimens should be given for a period of seven to 10 days. If a patient has a documented severe allergic reaction to both metronidazole and penicillin, it is highly recommended to attempt penicillin desensitization if possible, rather than use the alternative antimicrobials. Should it not be possible, medications such as doxycycline, erythromycin, clindamycin, and vancomycin are potential options. Benzodiazepines are indicated for the management of muscle spasms and rigidity through, through advancement of GABA inhibition and can also be utilized for sedation purposes if the patient needs to be intubated. Diazepam has been described in the literature and is recommended in pediatric patients at either fixed or weight-based dosing up to the adult initial maximums. If diazepam needs to be continued to be increased based on the severity and or frequency of muscle spasms, or if the patient requires sedation for mechanical intubation, Midazolam infusion is a viable option based on a similar efficacy profile. Additionally, midazolam does not have propylene glycol as an additive ingredient, whereas injectable diazepam does, thus mitigating the risk of propylene glycol toxicity and associated acute kidney injury. The use of paralytics has also been described in the literature as adjunct therapy to benzodiazepine use when spasms continue to be of concern. Both vecuronium and pancuronium have been incorporated in the treatment of tetanus infections. And then finally, supportive care is also indicated to manage pain and fever associated with the illness. Intravenous fluids should be administered to maintain hydration status. The use of parenteral nutrition may be indicated with prolonged hospitalization. Intubation is also reasonable if there's concern about protecting the airway. So earlier in the patient case, you kind of talked about magnesium. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the primary literature on tetanus management um, and any gaps in knowledge or limited evidence? 
Sure. There are obvious ethical issues around treating patients with tetanus that stray from the standard level of care. So most of the studies that are available are either case reports or case series with a couple of retrospective studies mixed in. Ultimately, while we have data on a few medications, most of what we know is very limited and often comes from the developing countries. If patients continue to spasm despite benzodiazepine initiation and titration, another medication that can be considered is magnesium sulfate given intravenously. There are a few studies available that have been published over the last 20 years or so describing this specific intervention for the management of spasms associated with tetanus. Magnesium infusions have been described in a few papers with some success in mitigating muscle spasms. Most of the literature I've come across has come out of India and pediatric patients. One study from Mumbai, India, described using magnesium infusion as a first-line therapy for muscle spasms and rigidity. Shanback and colleagues described 27 children between 18 months to 10 years of age who had received both tetanus immunoglobulin and the tetanus toxoid vaccine prior to magnesium administration. Patients then received a magnesium bolus of 100 milligrams per kilogram given over 30 minutes, followed by a magnesium infusion starting at 40 milligrams per kilogram per hour and titrating it every six hours by five milligrams per kilogram per hour to a maximum of 100 milligrams per kilogram per hour based on muscle spasm resolution or if the patellar tendon reflex is no longer responsive. Additionally, the rate was decreased if the patient's serum magnesium exceeded five millimoles per liter which converts to about 12 milligrams per deciliter. 13 of the 27 patients required a diazepam infusion in addition to the magnesium infusion, with 14 of the remaining 14 patients achieving satisfactory spasm control alone with magnesium. This suggests that magnesium infusion is a feasible initial option for addressing muscle spasm and rigidity associated with tetanus. The most notable adverse effect of the magnesium infusion was hypocalcemia and hypercalciuria. Monitoring the serum magnesium, urine calcium, urine creatinine, and the urine calcium to creatinine ratio, ionized calcium, and serum phosphorus should be performed at least daily until stable and then twice weekly while continued. Additional calcium supplementation via enteral and parenteral routes may be warranted. Additionally, baclofen is a, is a consideration. Baclofen is a skeletal muscle relaxant that is often used for spasms associated with multiple medical conditions. It specifically activates GABA-B receptors on the presynapse that can induce hyperpolarization of afferent terminals and inhibits reflexes at the spinal level. Studies have described baclofen administration through the intrathecal route, but most of these are either case reports or case series. Outcomes for these patients were favorable, but most required ventilator support during or after treatment initiation. Another potential option includes phenobarbital, which has limited information as adjunct therapy in the treatment of muscle spasms and rigidity. It is a long-acting barbiturate that, can, that has sedative and hypnotic properties and inhibits GABA-like effects similar to benzodiazepines through membrane hyperpolarization and delays nerve impulses. If considered, dosing needs to be titrated to avoid respiratory depression. However, if the patient is mechanically intubated, higher doses can be utilized while monitoring for this side effect. Dantrolene is another potential agent that can be considered. It specifically acts on skeletal muscle by interfering with calcium release from the sarcoplasmic reticulum. While indicated for malignant hyperthermia, it has also been used as adjunct therapy to manage autonomic dysfunction. It may play a role in patients with severe or very severe tetanus, but literature is excessively limited. 
Other medications that have been used for dysautonomia include chlorpromazine, botulinum toxin, bupivacaine with sufetanil, intravenous clonidine, labetalol, esmolol, and morphine. The kitchen sink. Pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned the DTaP vaccine a little bit earlier. How is that different from the Tdap vaccine? And what are the other preventative strategies after treatment and for people in general? That's a great question. Really, the most effective way to prevent tetanus is to get vaccinated. The DTaP vaccine is indicated in pediatric patients aged two months to less than seven years. It contains 15 flocculation units of the diphtheria toxoid five flocculation units of tetanus toxoid, and acellular pertussis antigens. If it's included in a combination product, the amount of the diphtheria and tetanus toxoid flocculation units can vary a bit. Tdap vaccines are indicated in all patients seven years of age and older and have a similar amount of the tetanus toxoid in the products, but the diphtheria amount is much lower with only between two to two and a half flocculation units per vaccine dose. Probably the easiest way to remember the difference is to consider which letter comes first in the vaccine. If the first letter is D, there's more diphtheria toxoid. If the first letter is T, there's more tetanus toxoid. Of note, patients who have received a complete series of tetanus vaccines, which is defined as four doses if they're below seven years of age, or three doses if they're seven years of age and older, are essentially considered to have 100% clinical efficacy in terms of tetanus protection. Recently, it was announced that the individual DT vaccine without pertussis is no longer going to be manufactured, which means the only option for pediatric patients will be the DTaP vaccine. While generally not a concern, some patients have had an adverse reaction to the pertussis vaccine, which is when the singular DT vaccine would be indicated. So it will be pertinent to review patient allergies and monitor patients for possible allergic reactions. Other preventative strategies include watching and debridement of the wound area, but ultimately vaccination remains the most effective and important strategy. All right, so let's go visit our patient again. How is PG progressing? PG is progressing reasonably well. He started on magnesium where he receives the 100 milligram per kilogram bolus of magnesium sulfate intravenously over 30 minutes, followed by the magnesium infusion at 40 milligrams per kilogram per hour. Its urine magnesium is checked daily along with urine calcium, urine creatinine, and urine calcium to creatinine ratio. He's titrated up to 45 milligrams per kilogram per hour, which seems to adequately control his spasms in addition to the midazolam infusion. The day after the magnesium infusion is initiated, PG's serum magnesium is 5.4 milligrams per deciliter. His serum calcium is 7.3 milligrams per deciliter. His iCal is 3.9 milligrams per deciliter. Serum phosphate is 2.3. Urine calcium is 84.3, his urine creatinine is 83 with a urine calcium to creatinine ratio of 1.02. PG's vecuronium infusion is titrated off while maintaining adequate spasm control. Given his hypocalcemia, additional calcium supplementation is ordered with calcium gluconate one, one gram intravenously for three doses and calcium carbonate 1250 milligrams, which is 500 milligrams of elemental calcium, enterally twice daily. His hypophosphatemia is treated with a 0.25 millimole per kilogram sodium phosphate bolus. PG also develops pneumonia on the third day of hospital admission. He has cultures drawn and is initiated on empiric ceftriaxone at 50 milligrams per kilogram intravenously every 24 hours. The cultures grow streptococcal pneumonia, pneumonia 
and then end meningitis, so the antimicrobial course is continued while intubated. After eight days, the magnesium infusion is discontinued. His serum calcium slowly increases to the normal range, and he develops hyperphosphatemia with a peak serum phosphate of 6.8 milligrams per deciliter the day the magnesium is discontinued. He completes a 10-day course of metronidazole and a 7-day course of cetriaxone for bacterial pneumonia. He is able to open his mouth and is discharged 11 days after presenting to the ED. The family agrees to vaccine administration for the whole family to prevent future occurrences of tetanus. So overall, a scary event, but a very happy ending. Well, that's all the time we have today. Thank you, Norm, for a great topic and discussion. For our ASHP members, you can find additional resources to earn free continuing education for listening to this episode by visiting elearning.ashp.org backslash podcast. Please note that continuing education credit expires two years after the date of this episode as published. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to subscribe to the ASHP official through your favorite podcast provider, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.